0: Several different groups have made the claim, and doubled down on it, that Christianity is the white man's religion. And this has been debunked numerous times by myself and others, so I'm not gonna go down that road again. In fact, I was once asked, what is something that is noticeably absent from the Bible? My response? Europeans. specifically Western Europe, but you get the idea. And all of that basically means is that those who claim that Christianity is a white man's religion are making a historically and factually ridiculous claim. Christianity was indigenous in Africa many centuries before Western Europe ever heard about Jesus. But I'll save that for another video. What I wanna do here is just highlight some of the Africans present and active in the Old Testament almost like a tribute to those who have gone before us regardless of your ethnic background. So stay tuned until the end and happy black history month. If this is your first time here, please make sure and hit that subscribe button so that you never miss a video or an interview. Our goal is to help you enter into a confirmed, confident and eternal relationship with the source of all life and purpose so first let's outline what is meant by certain terms that we use today and then we'll look at countries groups and cultures in biblical context and see what was going on at the time when these things were being recorded and written about in ancient time now it needs to be said although for practical and societal purpose it doesn't really matter that much but the term middle east is a relatively recent term And this means that the territories that we currently refer to as the Middle East were originally part of Africa. In fact, until about 1885, the part of the region of the world currently referred to as the Middle East was considered part of Africa. Historically, most Middle Eastern countries, 13 out of 18, are part of the Arab world. The most populous countries in the region are Egypt, Iran, and Turkey, while Saudi Arabia is the largest Middle Eastern country by area. The history of the Middle East dates back to ancient times with the geopolitical importance of the region being recognized for millennia. I'm sure everybody's well aware of that dictionary.com says, so what about those three confusing phrases far East, Middle East, and Near East? The simplest of these slippery phrases is the Far East first recorded in 1616. The phrase Far East came into common usage in the 1800s because of British colonial expansion to Eastern Asia. The term was used to describe all British colonies east of India. Today, it still refers to China, Japan, and other countries on the eastern rim of Asia, but its use has declined steadily in the latter 20th century. First used in 1856, the term Near East was defined specifically against Far East and referred to the region in Asia that's west of India. Today, the region of the Near East is imprecise and overlaps with the Middle East. It typically refers to Southwest Asia, particularly Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and other nations of the Arabian Peninsula. It is not as commonly used as Middle East. So where is the Middle East? Well, it depends on who you ask. The phrase Middle East was first used in 1876 as a synonym for Mesopotamia, which literally meant between rivers in ancient Greek, specifically between the Tigris and Euphrates in modern-day Iraq. Over time, it has come to describe the region stretching from Egypt and Sudan and Africa to Turkey in the north to Iran. Oddly, in Asia, what we call the Middle East is called Western Asia. If you look at a map, that makes sense. Also, it might be helpful to know some of the customs that even we owe a debt of gratitude to for coming out of Africa. Not because they're African in their origin, specifically, but that's just the nature of where they came from. In the New Manners and Customs of the Bible, James Freeman writes, In reference to Moses' Ark, In Exodus 2 and 3, the Hebrew word translated ark in the King James Version is better translated basket. The word is the same for both. Also, the KJV bulrushes were actually papyrus plants. Moses' basket was made of the leaf of the papyrus, which is a reedy plant that in those days grew plentifully on the banks of the Nile, and which was used by the Egyptians for making garments, shoes, cords, baskets, boats, sails, and a variety of other things. The roots were dried and used for fuel. The pith of the stem was boiled and eaten, but it was used mainly in making papyrus paper. The inside bark was cut into strips, which were sewn together and dried in the sun, forming the papyrus used for writing. Papyrus grows today in Egypt, and Ethiopia, in the Jordan River, Valley, and in Sicily. So one of the earliest forms of paper comes out of this region in Egypt. So with the background info out of the way, Some of you all may be watching this and thinking, why does it even matter if there were Africans in the Bible or in the Old Testament? The fact that there were Africans or darker skinned people is not the point here. This isn't an attempt to rewrite history. However, the goal is to get history, Bible or otherwise, correct. Accuracy is the goal here. For some, it is known, as it should be, that there were certainly many Africans in the Bible both named and assumed, but this truth was not always taught or professed. In an article entitled, Evidence of Black Africans in the Bible, Dr. Dan Rogers writes, scholars, particularly in 19th century Germany, said that even if Cush were black in color, he must be regarded as a Caucasoid black. Why? Because in their view, Negroes were not within the purview of the writers of the Bible. Even some modern biblical scholars hold this view. For example, Martin Noth, considered to be one of the most respected Old Testament scholars of all time, states on page 263 of his book, The Old Testament World, that the biblical writers knew nothing of any Negro people. Now, the historical empire and area of Kush is actually in the territory we currently know as Sudan, but the Kush territory at one time encompassed portions of Ethiopia and Egypt as well. The center city was in Napata, which was a city of ancient Kush at the fourth cataract of the Nile. It's located approximately 1.5 kilometers from the right side of the Nile River at the side of modern Karima, Sudan. Either way, the territory is on the continent of Africa. So now let's look at some of these Old Testament Africans, especially those who many might not have even heard of. In an article entitled Hidden Africans of the Bible and Early Church, Catherine Clark Kroger writes, Hagar, the Egyptian concubine of Abraham, may well have derived her ancestry from south of Egypt, and she alone of all the Bible characters gives God a name. We can see this in Genesis 16 and 13, which reads, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Now, the author continues. Like Abraham, she meets God in the form of an angel and is given a promise that her progeny shall become a great nation. Moses's Cushite wife, which we'll talk about more in a second, aroused the bitter jealousy of his sister Miriam. For context, we can look at the passage that precedes Numbers 12, 11 through 16. Numbers 12 and 1 reads, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Amusingly, Miriam, who resents her black sister-in-law, becomes white with leprosy until she mends her ways. When the Israelites settled the land of Canaan, there were Africans among them. Some may have left Egypt along with the Israelites at the time of the Exodus. Others came with military invaders. Apparently, an Ethiopian colony was created at Gerar as a buffer between Egypt and Judah. Thus, the Ethiopians became permanent residents in Palestine, remaining there until the time of Hezekiah, 715 to 685 BC. Accordingly, we read, they journeyed to the entrance of Gedor, to the east side of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks, where they found rich, good pasture, and the land was very broad, quiet, and peaceful, for the former inhabitants there belonged to Ham. Further, a group of Palestines and Arabs were said to be settled near the Ethiopians. Persons of African descent appear to have taken an active role in Israel's social and political life. The bride in Song of Solomon is black and beautiful. A Cushite who possessed tact, discretion, and a high position in the royal court appeared as a trusted courtier sent to tell David news of Absalom's death. Africans continued to enjoy royal favor as Solomon married an Egyptian princess and he received the Queen of Sheba. This influential queen ruled dark-skinned peoples on both sides of the Red Sea and she may well have initially come to Solomon to negotiate a trade treaty with his growing maritime power. Though she tested him with hard questions, in the end she told him all that was in her heart. It appears that in this black woman, Solomon found a kindred spirit with whom he could discourse freely. Now, whether or not that relationship was sexual, there is evidence that other alliances did indeed produce children. Zephaniah, a descendant of Hezekiah, is called the son of Cushi and brings special prophecies about Cush. Jehudi, the courtier sent to bear Jeremiah's message from Barut to King Zedekiah, appears to have a Cushite ancestor. Faithfully, Baruch stands before the king, reading the words of God, while the king slashes the scrolls and casts it into the fire. Now, I think there's a really cool story in the book of Jeremiah that's often overlooked. Shout out to BK for this one. It's bodega time. Jeremiah 38, 7 through 13 gives us the beginning of the account of Abid melech It reads: Now Abed-Melech the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Abed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, "My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city." Then the king commanded Abed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here thirty men with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Abed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took from there old clothes and old rags and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then abed the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits under the ropes and Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Abed-Melech is a confidential advisor of the king and is identified as a Cushite at least four times. Abed-Melech understood that Jeremiah was bringing God's true voice to Judah, so Abed-Melech risked his life to rescue Jeremiah from the cistern and helped him obtain a hearing with the king. Later, Jeremiah records a blessing from God for the helpful man's faith when he says, "Meanwhile, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, "Go and speak to Abenimelech, the Ethiopian, saying, "Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you." But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid, for I will surely deliver you and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. Now, back to the article. When Kushite pharaohs ruled over Egypt, they contracted military alliances with both Israel and Judah, especially during the time of the 25th or Kushite dynasty. Sabako contracted an alliance against Assyria with Hoshea king of israel while terhaka came to the aid of hezekiah when jerusalem was besieged mortuary figurines of terhaka clearly reveal his african features and his enormous statue still towers above the great temple complex at karnak and before we look at some of the other africans in the old testament i want to echo the words of craig keener and glenn uzri from defending black faith they write If ancient Israel and modern European Christians have erred by making their own cultures the norm for human history or God's purposes, we also err if we appropriate the Bible for ourselves alone and repudiate other people's instead of recognizing God's universal purposes. If he did not allow Israel to depend on its chosen status, there is no point in trying to elevate our own ethnic status before him. Can we really suppose that the God who formed the universe is God of only one people, whether that be Israel, Europe, or Africa? There are the Africans that most Bible readers are aware of, even if the tendency is to gloss over their ethnic background, such as Nimrod, son of Cush. The Bible says Nimrod is first on earth to become a mighty warrior. Later, it's recorded that he founded and ruled some important cities in Mesopotamia. Or what about Phineas, the grandson of Aaron and a high priest? Bible dictionaries define the name Phineas as mouth of brass or from old Egypt, the Negro or the dark skinned one. Something that isn't much talked about that I sort of alluded to a few minutes ago is who actually took part in the Exodus. See, Exodus 12, 37 to 38 records, then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them. Now, this implies that the mixed multitude is composed of different people who fall within the primary multitude here, which are the Israelites. So for all those that want to say that they were all Israelites and then pen salvation on proving or aligning with a Hebraic lineage, stop it. The passage continues also and flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leaven, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now David Goodzik writes, not all of the 600,000 were Israelites. Many Egyptians and perhaps other foreigners went with them because the God of Israel demonstrated that he was more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. The other reason that is important that we are clear about Africa is because misperceptions and misrepresentations have been damaging in the past. A misunderstanding of Jeremiah 13, 23, which reads, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. It can lead to a mistreatment and has led to a mistreatment of Africans and or their descendants. Bad thinking almost always leads to bad actions. Adamo notes, all the above translations are virtually the same in reference to the passage in Jeremiah. What is very unfortunate is that the two major translations in the two major Nigerian languages, Yoruba and Igbo, follow the English translation verbatim, giving the impression that there is deep prejudice against black people. And so this is an example of the degree to which such translations have misled the world. The temptation is for one to interpret it as such as some Western exegetes who have a deep prejudice against black African people will normally interpret it. We also have repeated instances where God's people sought refuge from danger or famine in Egypt, which is in Africa. So Abraham went to Egypt during a famine to prevent starvation. We see this in Genesis 12. There was a famine in the story of Joseph that brought his uh, family reunion to bear. There was a, a man named Hadad who was an Edomite prince. And the account is recorded in 1 Kings 11:14 14 through 22. It reads, in part, Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. For it happened, when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain, after he had killed every male in Edom, because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel, until he had cut down every male in Edom, that Hadad fled to go to Egypt. He and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, apportioned food for him, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife, the sister of his own wife, that is, the sister of Queen Tapines. Then the sister of Tapines bore him Janubath, his son, whom Tapines weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Janubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart, that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me, that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, nothing, but do let me go anyway. Listen, he just wanted to go back home. (laughs) At the end of his essay, Adamo captures why it matters that we get it right concerning Africa and thereby Africans. He writes, finally, it relieves Africans from the inferiority complex that has been imposed upon them by the Euro-American slave masters. For example, in the days of slavery in America, when the question of converting African slaves to Christianity arose, it was resolved that there was no need because they were less than human beings and therefore lacked souls to convert. If the slave owners had been aware of the role of Africa and Africans in the Bible, perhaps they would have not been treated as slaves. Perhaps the dignity of Africans and all humankind would have been recognized if the Bible had been searched and interpreted without bias against Africa or Africans. So in closing, Africa, Africans matter to God, just like Europeans. Just like Asians, just like South Americans, just like Australians, just like people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Keener and Usury write, Africa has continued to play an important part in the drama of the God of the Bible, and will do so until the Lord Jesus returns. In the meantime, Jesus has called all who claim to follow him to make disciples from among all the nations. Those of us who believe in Jesus therefore cannot reject other cultures or peoples in the process of acknowledging our own. Christians affirm that Christian faith did not simply evolve from African, Asian, Western, or any other culture. We affirm that God revealed His truth as He willed it. At the same time, we recognize that God communicated truth in the language and history of the day. In a world of which Northern and Eastern Africa constituted a continuing and important part. Well, I hope you enjoyed this brief look at some of the Africans that the Lord chose to use in His plan of redemption and kingdom advancement. God has never and will never just use one group of people for his plans and or to advance his kingdom in the earth. Thank God that he is a gracious, loving and culturally inclusive father. But I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments of maybe some things you learned about some Africans in the Bible that you didn't previously know. Or just what are your thoughts on how the gospel has unfolded in God's way and God's plan over the history of the earth and over the entirety of the globe?